0: Before we get to this week's podcast, I want to tell you about Digiday Plus. It is our premium membership product, and it gets you our quarterly Digiday magazine and a steady stream of exclusive research about the media and marketing industries. You'll also get to be part of our Digiday Plus Slack community and exclusive member events. In fact, we're hosting a live podcast with Vox here in New York City on December 5th. I will be speaking with Lindsay Nelson, who is the CMO of Vox. If you sign up, you can join us. It is a $395 a year and for you our podcast listeners we have a discount enter the code podcast at checkout and you'll get 10 percent off so visit digidayplus.com and join our membership program brand is more important than it's ever been
1: companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead
0: And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models.
1: If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is.
0: Welcome to the Digiday Podcast, I'm Brian Marcy, joined by Keith Grossman, Global uh, Chief Revenue Officer for Bloomberg Media. Keith, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is a long time. We've been working on this for I'm, a while. I know,
1: I know. I, I'm so excited when I was telling people that I was going to do this and everyone's like, oh, I listen to this all the time. It's like, hey, hey, everyone. It's like, okay. hi, mom. <laughs> so um, I, I follow you on
0: Instagram. I think a lot of people, if you don't follow Keith on Instagram, you really should. What is your, what's your Instagram? I go, it, it's tough. It's Keith Grossman. Keith Grossman. Oh, you got <laughs> Keith Grossman. I thought it was like K Grossman 11 or something. But you travel a lot because you're global. Chief revenue officer. And so you're just back from this epic trip of like 11 countries.
1: 11 countries in 30 days.
0: Yeah. And so um, I, you have a global view. So I would like to get, I, I talk with a lot of people here about their specific challenges, specific markets, usually the US market or the UK market. What did you, what were your big, you know, three headlines you took away from, you know, the global view of what the challenges are out there and just the state of media in general?
1: Sure. So um, I actually have a weird view, which is prior to taking on the global role about a year and a half, two years ago, um, I'd only been to 10 countries I think in my entire life. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think I was like a bubble boy. Uh, I grew up on the Upper East Side of New York. I live on the Upper West Side of New York. I went to college in New York State and I work in Midtown. And so I was always like this two-mile bubble boy. And I always thought that New York City was the center of everything. Um, As I started to travel, I think what I What I realized was um, there was a lot that I didn't know I didn't know. Uh, First being that uh, things like AIPAC and EMEA don't really exist. Um, Everything is at a country level. Uh, The second is is that in the United States, this is a a large-scale sort of generalization to simplify it, um, people look at themselves through the lens of race first, gender second, nationality third. But outside the United States, people tend to look at themselves through the lens of nationality first, Uh, gender second, race third. So it's completely inverted. And so what that means is that when you start thinking about your strategy as a a brand penetrating different areas of the world, you actually have to start thinking about the country and the culture that you're trying to target as opposed to the region. The region doesn't exist outside of spreadsheets themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Give me a a story that illustrates that.
1: Um, So take your... Digiday Japan Strategy. OK. Uh, Those of you who do not know, we do have a Japanese language site. Actually, it's excellent. And uh, and I would say that you pretty much own Japan in terms of, of, of your presence there. Um, but that does not translate over to South Korea. That doesn't translate over to a Chinese strategy and that doesn't translate over to a Hong Kong mm-hmm. strategy and it doesn't translate in Singapore. Yeah. and a, things,
0: and things that we do there actually are different. Like things like so we do a lot of like confessions here and stuff like this, but
1: they don't want would them not work there. because
0: it makes people feel awkward and they don't like to feel uncomfortable or awkward or um, it's just a little bit of a different culture.
1: Yeah, exactly. and, and it's fascinating though, for me because um, I've gotten, such exposure to so many different countries I think while I did 11 in the past 30 days um, and I can make it look really good on Instagram but it is exhausting on every level and uh, you know this past year alone I think I've done close to 37 and um I've seen all the lobbies now of, of Bloomberg. Well, he, okay, so offices. here's actually- there's and they're all fabulous. They're better than this is, this is This is, you have a great lobby. I want you to know <laughs> you should start <laughs> really? photographing. I actually think it's a beautiful loft space. If you've not been to Digiday's headquarters, okay. this is my first time. It's a beautiful loft space. But the reason that I did it was it started out that I realized that there's a lot of people at Bloomberg who um, follow me on Instagram. And the problem when you start thinking about a global company is um, people don't think like that. Um, people think that 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 their existence is only in the office that is in front of you or that you exist in so mm-hmm. if you're in New York you always think that Bloomberg is New York and if you're in Singapore you really think primarily Bloomberg is in Singapore and so what I really wanted to do originally was um, just start showing people like the scale of what we try to articulate every day so like when we say stats like we have 2700 journalists in 120 countries worldwide I want people to see what having a presence in 120 countries worldwide really looks like it's not having one person here, right? It's not it's not a small dinky thing. And and what I'm trying to do is is just bring something to life to show the organization that might not be in every single country how big the organization truly is. And so the funny mm-hmm. thing is is that I have to skirt all of the regulations by Taking pictures that have no people in them, essentially, and no, <laughs> and no information on it, and so I tend to always have empty pictures of the lobbies. But they, it, it serves its purpose. Okay, so let's
0: talk about this. Is you have a giant footprint with Bloomberg Media, um, and there are a lot of pressures in in the U.S. market, but these are global pressures on on independent media. Now, Bloomberg has the terminal business, mm-hmm. and everyone outside of Bloomberg looks at it. Um, very um with with some amount of uh, longing because they would love to have a terminal business but at the same time you guys are under the same kinds of pressures that every other media company is under
1: right yeah i mean i we're first i mean every media is either you, you fall into two camps today right you either think it's the most exciting time in media or you think it's the scariest time in media right and so um I personally fall into the exciting camp. I think it's amazing. I think this is the single best time to ever be in media, regardless of all the conversations about, you know, the duopoly or programmatic or, you know, is there a death of this or that? There's always a death of something in media, right? Um, And I think that um, we're in a fortunate position because most media companies have one or two platforms to serve against. And we have you know, five platforms when you take into account digital and television and print and radio and events. And we have six platforms. If you take into account the homepage of the terminal, and we have seven platforms. If you take into account that we actually own our distribution into all of the global markets, we don't license out. And so, uh, you know, the realities of, you know, print being challenged or, you know, linear television being challenged or, or radio being challenged, very real, um, in different markets, they exist differently. And, Asia, for instance, linear television is still very strong. Um, uh, print is stronger than it is in, you know, Europe um, for the most part. Um, but you know, one of the things that we found for ourselves was that we were not going to sort of just navigate out of this transition um, of what's happening in the media space um, by sort of settling into what the natural flows are of where revenue is going. Instead, we were looking at innovative ways of taking the challenged platforms and turning them into opportunities. And what I mean by that is is if you look at the Twitter launch that we're doing, Mm -hmm. part of the reason that we're able to have success on Twitter is because our linear television feed, which is a very niche feed that goes to a very sort of defined audience, actually has very few carriage agreements and no authentication requirements. So we can go over the top to any digital distribution, whether it's you know our website or mobile or OTT. And then we just started to say, why couldn't we do it on Twitter? And we start to see success, which is what ultimately led to us going in this direction. And so what traditionally is a challenged space, linear television, or becoming more challenged, became an opportunity because mm-hmm. it started to feed content into other distribution mechanisms. <laughs>
0: So I would think that because, though, of the terminal business, you could have a little bit longer term of a view when it comes to things like platforms than many publishers who are really just looking a quarter or two quarters out. Yes. So explain how you view the platforms. I mean, I know I was talking with with Justin Smith, the CEO of Bloomberg Media. I don't know, it was about 18 months ago. Um, And he talked about um, platforms of being pretty wary of them. And that you know, uh, do things that fit into your strategy. And um, he was talking about how a lot of uh, publishers are are just kind of chasing the newest thing on platforms and allowing platforms to dictate their strategy rather than vice versa.
1: So um, yeah, I mean, I think that we're in a very fortunate position because while we're a media company, we're a very large media company. Um, we exist within a larger LP that allows us to think longer. And really think about like the direction of where we want to take the brand and how we want to end up doing that. And um, I think that when Justin did his uh, survival guide with Digiday about 18 months ago, right? Mm -hmm. Was it about then? Um, it's, It's something that I've always held very near and dear to my heart and I agree with, which is. Um, You know, the media industry, while it's under the pressures of of changing today, forces some people's hands when they have to, to um, make short-term decisions that come at the expense of the long term. And if you look back, and, you know, prior to being at Bloomberg, I was at Wired for 12 years, and you look back at the history of Wired, we actually, between Howard Mittman and I, um, pulled Wired and even convinced the New Yorker to pull itself off of Flipboard as Flipboard was beginning to emerge for the same reason that – Uh, we saw the platforms sort Mm -hmm. of taking the same position today, which is um, it's a tough business to be in when someone else can um, uh, control your destiny and future. And so part of what we want to do is is be very wary about um, what are the terms in which we're going to create an agreement? What are the... um, uh, what is the reality over the next 12 months to two years that we'll be able to see? If the rug was pulled out from under us, how could we survive or how would we navigate this? And just putting all of our eggs in one basket because it's you know the right short-term thing to do is is not where we want to be. So would you classify
0: yourselves organizationally as Facebook skeptics?
1: No, I think that we are... Um, I would say that we're not Facebook skeptics in the slightest. I think that we are more in the lens of um, a, we don't find that we need to uh, like have our hand forced as quickly as, as others You don't are have moving. to be part
0: of the launch press release. Exactly.
1: Okay. We're a notoriously private company, so like we'll make decisions that sometimes might not make sense publicly at the moment mm-hmm. but that will play out over the course of time and and the example I would give is, is when Justin gave that presentation a lot of people were skeptic of that presentation and I think that a lot of people are seeing that a lot of the stuff that he put forth mm-hmm. about what happens if you expose your brand in certain areas actually you know makes your brand more vulnerable right. have come to true yeah I mean he talked about the need to owe for differentiation
0: um, about how everyone, uh, publishers need to be brand managers and um, and direct relationships with your audience, which is sort of a, a simple thing, but that I think in in recent um, months certainly people are coming back to.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I mean, it's not it's not that it can't happen. We are establishing an incredible partnership with Twitter. And they've been amazing partners on mm-hmm. every level. So why Twitter? Why, why
0: not Facebook? I mean, because it's interesting that you're, I mean, everyone is piling into Facebook Watch and, mm-hmm. and you know, before that is Facebook Live and Facebook, you know, says jump and usually media organizations are, you know, say how high. Um, uh, so why Twitter? I mean, Twitter has the, blooms a little bit off that
1: rose. So I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'll tell you why I don't think so. I think that, um, uh if you look at twitter and you look at the utility that twitter provides uh its user base um uh, twitter's really good at immediacy of news coverage uh really which is the center of what we do which is news right where twitter sort of goes awry um sometimes is you know it's a very easy place to insert fake news it's very chaotic it's um uh, you know, it, it can be very jumbling of an experience. But um, the flip side of it is there's people who curate Twitter highly and have really amazing sort of Twitter experiences as it relates to, um, you know, understanding what's happening in the world around them. Um, for us, uh, when we did all the research and we saw, you know, all the success that we had with Twitter based off of the presidential debates in the U.S., you know, 2.1 million viewers, 2.4 million viewers, 3.2 million viewers, um on the twitter platform i mean we started to broadcast three shows a day between bloomberg daybreak america's um you know what'd you miss as well as bloomberg technology and accumulated about a million viewers a day watching on twitter we started to realize like this is this is a platform where um it delivers what we do really well which is news very fast and where we could add value back to twitter in this partnership is um bloomberg as a verification source and so, like in a world of increasing fa- fake news, um, our brand acts as a really good filter to mm-hmm. show people that in this chaotic area, that actually provides the fastest information to you. Um, uh, like we can actually, uh, you know, help you suss out what's real and what you need to know fast.
0: Mm-hmm. Does the focus on fake news that's happening right now, both in Washington and Europe and in other countries? Is that Does that give publishers an opening or is this sort of a false hope? Because I feel like publishers are, you know, look, you mentioned it. I mean, a lot of publishers come on here and they they, they complain about the duopoly and, and and whatnot. And there's not much you can do about it. It's the environment. But there is also this feeling that, hey, maybe maybe governments are what we need.
1: I mean, I, I think that the reality is is that if you're going to sit here and, and complain about the duopoly um, or you're going to fake, or you're going to, you know, uh, look at, you know, where Amazon's coming out and and really beginning to emerge in a very strong sense, uh, you're missing the bigger picture in general. And there's huge opportunity to still be had in media, regardless of what's happening with the duopoly. And I think that fake news is one of those moments where um, uh, selfishly, this is going to be a very weird statement, but I think selfishly, um, uh, from a business perspective, it's really good for business because it focuses um, the industry and the consumer on the value of a brand mm-hmm. and the value of a brand and the integrity that that brand offers to its readers. Um, uh, as a human being outside of everything, it makes me so sad that this is the state of, of the conversation and that the reality of the platforms. Which I personally do think should be regulated as news sources because they allow it, enable it, Um, uh, you know, have allowed the democratization of journalism to easily insert Mm -hmm. fake news into the conversation. So you think they're media companies in reality? They are media companies in reality. Okay. It's, I mean, it's easy to push yourself as a technology company because from a wall street perspective you get a much different valuation than if you push yourself as a media company but if you were to look at where the revenue comes from comes from advertisers right but it's also it's it's trying to skirt regulations i
0: don't know a lot, of, a lot of Silicon Valley, I feel like, you know, they put, nobody talks about sharing economies anymore. I mean, like, sharing economy was a way for Airbnb to skirt all the regulations and taxes that they would have to
1: pay as a giant hotel company.
0: Um, but I'm a cynic. I know. I Are know, you really? I, I mean, you
1: don't. So I mean, I, I would say this is that Jason Tanz, when I was at Wired, actually wrote one of the defining pieces on the sharing economy back in, I think it was 2012 it was. it, And, uh, you know, at, at Bloomberg, Brad Stone wrote a great book called The Upstarts, which was about the yeah. rise of, of the sort of second wave of, of these type of technology companies in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uber and Airbnb,
0: specifically. Yeah, Uber. There you go. I mean, just trying not to be regulated. Um, but eventually governments always will, they'll always get their hands in there. No matter how big you are, there's always a government yeah. that's bigger. So how important is subscriptions? I mean obviously you sell subscriptions to Bloomberg Businessweek but um, a lot of media companies now are souring on the idea of advertising as a dominant source. There's an absolute shift
1: to focusing on consumer revenue. Sure. so um, this goes back to our earlier conversation just about you know how this industry covers things right in our industry it's really interesting people like to say the death of. Um, in 2009, David Pogue wrote this this incredible piece in um, in the New York Times when he was there, uh, and it was "What Did I Learn After Covering the Tech Industry for 10 Years?" Yeah, and in it he talked about how um, things don't die; um, they splinter. Some things die, but they pretty much splinter off. You know, instant coffee didn't kill coffee. You know, TV didn't kill the radio stars. How the whole entire piece starts. Um, the reason I know this is that I I reference this piece quite a bit. And just when i talk about change and i think about change um you know i think that the traditional advertising model of command and control advertising is um dead um to an extreme um, but i think that uh what you're seeing remaining in it is is residual um in terms of inventory that will weigh it'll take many years to work itself out of the system whether it's 30-second commercial spots or banner ads or pages and magazines um, but that doesn't mean that advertising is dead. It just means that... Oh, uh, I didn't say advertising that, was dead. No, no, no. I, I'm just saying that like the the traditional forms of advertising that comes from a marketer that wants to engage with the consumer will will evolve. Um, but I'm this, just saying that advertising, digital
0: advertising in particular has become extremely commoditized and to the point that if people are going to support ambitious newsrooms in particular and do not have, say, a terminal business... Um, they got to get money directly from from consumers
1: they i agree with that and i think it's a smart strategy i think it's a strategy that people should be going towards and i think that the smartest play is not thinking about it as either or but like how you can right. really evolve
0: both. hey the times is growing their um growing their ad business again um they're certainly showing me a lot more ads um which we've never been able to track down but i swear they're Really turned up the crank on their ads. Yeah. Um, so, but getting back to that, are are you like where do subscriptions fall within the near and medium
1: term strategy? Sure. Well, I, I like I like to joke all the time that we actually have the world's best subscription business with the okay. terminal. Um, but, but that's that's three hundred odd thousand. No, of course. People paying a lot of money. Of course. But but I would rather take, you know, three hundred thousand people taking. So the that best. is your
0: that's your subscription. That strategy. is
1: where where it exists today. Now, if you've looked, we've put on a, a rather porous sort of reg wall right. on uh, our dot com. Um, business week, we've started to move towards subscriptions and really pushing that. And I think that over the next you know, short term, medium term, long term, I think you'll see a much larger sort of push towards it. Now, I think that the New York Times does a really nice job, I think, of finding a way of making it accessible. So that way, people can still get content, but then still finding a way to make sure that you register. So that way, they can figure out and understand who you are. I think that there's some people who do it a little too much to the detriment of their own brand in terms of giving access to other people and growing an audience over time. But I think that, um, Going into subscription direction, it's in a smart place to be. Okay, so let's talk about how you're shifting on the 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 ad
0: side. You um, seem like you're moving more towards like this consulting agency model.
1: So, um, yeah, I mean, what we did was um, when Andrew Bennett came on board, uh, it was a major from Havas Media, from Havas uh, Creative, oh, and see, uh, a and uh, it was a huge shift in our organization. Not in the sense of us launching a consulting model but thinking about our entire organization as a consultancy and um, that's a major transformation in terms of how you would think about it because what happens it's a very subtle thing but it's actually very real is that in a um, traditional publisher model the outcome is always media and in the consultancy model media is a tool within the arsenal and it's not always the outcome And one of the biggest realizations we had to have when we were going to um, move in this direction is um, we had to hire talent to come on board and make sure that um, we can actually implement and do this. Like we could, there were certain elements that you just can't train people to do a job that they've never fully done. Well, if
0: you've been selling pages in a magazine, I'm sure for your entire career, and then you were told you're a consultant, that wouldn't it's not it's, well it's people. not
1: it's not believable right from the marketplace um but what you can do is and you know look, when i came into bloomberg in 2014 people were selling platforms and we moved to an integrated cell at wired we moved to an integrated cell you teach people how to sell brands there's very easy ways of thinking about that but um what you do is is you begin to educate your sellers and your sales staff as to understanding keywords and moments and conversations and challenges that clients might be having and then know to then tap into the organization to bring those resources forward so that way the people who are trained strategists know how to handle the situation okay so that's the sort of take on what the modern sales force
0: looks like in a world where a lot of stuff's moving to computers and
1: programmatic and
0: I think automation, that, I guess, is a fancy word for yeah, automation. Well, I
1: think I think that you know, and I'm down in New Orleans with you guys next week at the Programmatic Summit. But I think that when you start thinking about um, the movement towards automation, it doesn't mean at the expense of people, right? That is yeah. just one element of how the transaction takes place, and it becomes more efficient and more effective, and and a better investment from the client's perspective, where the sales team evolves. Um, is that the sales team actually has to elevate its ability to articulate the value proposition of the brand itself. Um, and you know, if you think about that, that's really important because the sales team has to be able to come into any client situation and say, what is your challenge? Here's the value proposition of the brand I represent. And um, here's how we can help you think about solving your challenge as opposed to... Um, what is your media budget? Um, do you have it on digital or print or TV? And we happen to have those stations or those platforms. And I think that that's not a Bloomberg thing. That's an industry thing that mm-hmm. people are beginning to grasp grapple with.
0: But I mean that. I
1: mean that involves really changing a sales force, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, when we were at when I was at Wired with Howard uh, Mittman, who's now over at Bleacher Report. Um, you know, it it requires thinking about your sales force uh very differently and when i came into bloomberg and we merged the uh platform sellers into uh brand sellers it required a tremendous amount of training Mm -hmm. um but uh, won't they end up going back to what they're sort of comfortable with like
0: if you came from the radio side you're going to sell more radio if you came from the digital side you're going to sell more digital
1: now you know you would think that that would be the case um you know i came up through print originally right and um you know i don't actually have a bias towards any platform like i like any platform that enables you know us to serve and achieve the client's objectives and i have no bias towards pushing someone towards print or towards radio or towards uh digital and you know from a sales perspective what's interesting is you would think that um uh, everyone would want to push towards uh, uh the platform that they're most comfortable with but Uh, it's actually in a sales organization people push towards the platform that has the least resistance it's almost an inverted pyramid and you know at some least
0: resistance and the the
1: the highest commissions
0: uh yeah right but you know the you can align the incentives
1: but here's how you have to align incentives is you have to actually make sure that you're not comping your sales team against vertical platforms but that you simply give them a number Right, and you say you know you have to achieve X, and I don't care how you achieve X. And if you want to achieve X with you know 100% digital, do it. If you want to achieve X with 100% radio, do it. Mm-hmm. But you know if there's any mix in between any of the platforms, who cares? Just achieve mm-hmm. X. Where it falls flat is when you try to um, set. Uh, uh targets or revenue goals against vertical platforms so
0: you don't look at it's not like a kpi for what percentage
1: of your sales is digital versus no
0: non-digital
1: no and the only way to evolve is by and the only way to actually serve a client's needs genuinely and to be genuine when you are asking what is your challenge let me think about it is by removing how the sales team has to be comped by vertical and simply just give them a full revenue target and the reason is is that if you say to a sales team you get comped on x number if you hit digital and x number if you hit print and x number if you hit events or x number if you hit this what happens is is that the conversation that that your sales team can have with clients is disingenuous and that is true in any sense whatsoever because if a seller hits the number in one area but misses their number in another area then ultimately they do not get comped out the proper way and so if you remove that veto and you sort of allow it to um, allow the sales team to go into the marketplace and just think what is your problem and here are the tools i have in my arsenal to solve that problem then you will actually find that the outcome is better. The return rate is better. The uh, relationship is better, and the um, and the seller is happier in the long term, as is the client.
0: Okay, I want to. I want to do. Would you do some uh, word association?
1: It <laughs> <laughs> depending <laughs> okay. depends on the words. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. no. But basically, I uh, mean, you
0: don't have to uh, like you. Usually, okay. like you know, people riff for like you okay. know a minute or so. Um. Okay, we're going to do some word association. How fast do I have to answer these? Can I pause? You can pause, but okay. I wouldn't pause for like a minute. Okay. Uh, viewability.
1: Real. Okay. <laughs> You're giving me one word. I'm going to give you one word back. <laughs> <want> t- <laughs> uh, so no, you want, if you want to talk about viewability, I feel like opposing viewability is like opposing oxygen. Like I think that, or, or not believing that, that it's real. Like I think that it's, uh, you know, I understand the challenge of viewability in some instances of, of you know, the readjustment of supply and demand in the marketplace. But the reality is, is that any brand going out and saying like, I oppose viewability is actually standing for, I don't want your ad to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> which is a completely ridiculous argument. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's some crazy things going on in politics that, that, that I guess it, the arguments are sort of um, Well, if similar, you're going to apply
1: politics and the reality oh, of, of that to our industry, then <laughs> um, have, I don't okay. know which is crazier. The pivot to video real too uh, you know like I, I mean i think that what's happening is is not necessarily a pivot to video but a realization that that um linear tv is not the only distribution mechanism of video and um i think that when you think about video in general or you think about tv in general i you know i have a four-year-old daughter and uh, she says to me stuff like daddy like i want to watch tv but she doesn't mean linear television she just means a screen that serves video, and I think that the pivot to video represents the fact that that the definition of television has actually moved to any screen that can serve video. Okay. Publisher commerce models. In what sense?
0: I mean, like gift guides, trying to drive actual e-commerce
1: businesses. It's a weird business. It's a you know we exported at Wired, um, where we cover gadgets nonstop. And, you know, unless you're really in it, like it's a challenging business. You know, however, if you're Amazon, it's a brilliant business because you ultimately everything leads to commerce. But, you know, I think that uh, it's not an amazing business. It's not my top priority. How's that? Okay.
0: On that note, Amazon as uh, expanding the duopoly to a triopoly, I guess it would be.
1: I mean, I've been very uh, uh, public about I think that Amazon is, is a very interesting brand. I think that what they're doing is, is fascinating in terms of all roads lead back to commerce. Um, I think that when you look at um, Amazon uh, and what they're building, uh, even the Alexa versus the Home on the Google front, they're two totally different devices that are fully misunderstood in terms of what Amazon's objectives are versus what Google's objectives are, and um, I would probably say they're just as misunderstood as Google and Yahoo when people were thinking about right. the two um, back in the day.
0: The state of user experience
1: in digital media. Oh, it's 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 gonna get better because people have finally realized that that it's not as good as it could be, and I think that um, that's a nice way of putting it. I'm trying to mature <laughs> like, over, <laughs> as I get older. Is that fair? <laughs> I don't know. Some, it's pretty mm-hmm. horrific. That's I, I, my yeah, I mean, I think that, though, I, you know, to give kudos to Andrew Essex on his book, um, uh, The End of Advertising, you know, it's not actually about the end of advertising. It's about the end of bad advertising. Right. That's, that's fair.
0: That, that is, Andrew was on this podcast talking well, I, about that book. Um, so uh, last one is, and this is a sort of big one, the current crisis. Oh, hold on,
1: wait, wait. Before you go, can I just pause and just prepare myself for? Yeah, big? steal okay. yourself. Okay. Uh,
0: the current um, crisis of confidence in digital media. I mean, because when you add it all up, the duopoly, fraud,
1: spoofing,
0: yeah, I user
1: experience. Here's here's the thing, right? Like, this is what's interesting about digital. As as um, uh, so, if you look at if you look at TV it's a vertical. Linear TV is a vertical, right? You're either linear TV or you're not linear TV. And if you look at print, it's a vertical. You know, you're either um, uh, print uh, uh, on paper or you're not. And if you look at terrestrial radio, you're a vertical. You're either terrestrial radio or you're not. But digital is a horizontal. Like, it really just means anything that's digitized. And so in the question of, like, the current state of digital media, the reality is, is that anything is digital you know, anything that can be digitized is digital media. And I think that what's happening is, is people are looking at sections of it, and they're realizing that there's challenges. And I think that over time, they'll just be solved. And um, I'm not worried about that. Um, uh, I'm an, I am an optimist over time. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do think that that optimists define the future, as, as Kevin Kelly would say. Um, I do think, though, that right now, like, you do see a crisis because people are finally beginning to realize that, There's certain things that digital media Mm -hmm. makes too accessible and too personal to their own lives. And, um, you know, like the fact that fake news is as real as it is, is crazy. But it's only available because the barriers to entry in the digital news marketplace are so low. Yeah.
0: I think I, all the, all the bad parts that are enabled by an open system are just becoming for whatever reason there's a spotlight on on all of them.
1: But it's good because if there's a spotlight on it today, hopefully yeah. like what's happening is is that things will change. To me it's just a correction. There was
0: too much like unbridled optimism in the beginning like um Of what? Oh, it's going to enable all of these new voices, and it's going to be wonderful, and everything's going to be free, and it's you know the long tail and all that sort of techno utopian stuff. And now we're just in trough of despair.
1: Yeah, you know what's what's funny is is I I mentioned Kevin Kelly earlier, and one of the most amazing things he ever said to me at an an event in a conversation was, um, "There's never been a technology that's been invented for good that also hasn't been used for bad." That's a great note to
0: end on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Keith. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.